I don't know if you've ever wondered what it would be like to make a huge impact right where God has you. I mean, like, have you ever prayed about that in your life? I, I think a lot of us will pray about when I'm out there at that point somewhere, I'll do something. But have you ever prayed, you know, God, how can I be an impact right where I am right now, right where you have me? Without changing a thing. See what I'm saying? Not when you get, you know, your life together enough. Not whenever you have the answers you need. Not whenever everything is so super clear. But right now in the mess of life, in the middle of the chaos, how can I serve you? How can I benefit others in your name? I think that that's the root of the text that we're going to hear this morning. Up to this point in the gospel or in the uh, book of Acts, we have heard the story of the birth of the church, and we've heard the story of the disciples of Jesus becoming the apostles of Jesus, and we've heard of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But today, there's this new transition, this new part of the story that becomes more and more inclusive. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. I'll give you a second to get there. Should be pretty close to that page number that we had up there a moment ago. Here we go. In those days, when the number of disciples were, was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and they said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from, amongst, from among you who are known to be, be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal seemed to please the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus, Nic Nicanor, Timon, Paramenus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a co convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed over them and laid their hands upon them. And so the word of the Lord spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of the grace and power, of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs amongst the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedman, as they were called, the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the providences of Sicilia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops preaching against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face as the face of an angel. It might seem like a subtle thing what happens there, right? 
But I want to talk through maybe what that means today. I'm going to do what we always do. I want to pray. And I, I'm, I'm really praying that God would open his word to us this morning in a powerful way. So pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth uh, that you are God and we are not. We thank you for the reality uh, that your son is our savior and we cannot save ourselves, but we are saved by grace through faith in his name. We thank you so much for the power of your Holy Spirit that you have poured out upon your church and we believe indeed upon us that you have imparted part of yourselves into us that we might respond to you. Maybe that there are those who don't know you today here, that, that you're drawing them along by the power of your Holy Spirit, even while we are yet unaware of that fact. We pray, Father, that we would know you more through your inspired word that we could understand by the early church's example and our own lives what it means to be a follower of you. Father God, would you be our teacher this morning? Would you teach us through your word? Help us to understand it in our minds, believe it in our hearts, and live it in our lives. Help us to be changed by you. Father, we spend a lot of time saying how we want the world, but help us to see the world the way you want the world. Help us to be your servants. We love you so much, and we pray this prayer, trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this perpetual increasing of discipleship. We've heard this before, right? We talked about last week how every time there's a persecution and an outbreak in the Holy Spirit in the church, there's a persecution of the church, and then the disciples grow. And we enter into today's text for that same thing. In the days, the numbers of disciples were increasing, right? But we want to focus here for a minute on verse 1. It says, the Grecian Jews among them, among who? The disciples who were increasing. The Grecian Jews among them began to complain, complain about or what, complain against, I think it's interesting that they're complaining against another people group of disciples, the Hebraic Jews, right? And so there's kind of all these people being brought together in the name of Jesus Christ as disciples of his, followers of his, believers in him, and then immediately you have this story. I mean, this is like really close. Early in the church, you have the story about people uh, complaining about other people. Why are they complaining? Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there's some really basic things. We make jokes these days about churches splitting over the color of the carpet and stuff, but that's a very basic thing, right? Two different people groups, both from the Jewish tradition, notice that, right? They're calling themselves Jews, still self-identifying as we are Jewish people, but two different sects of the Jews. Jews, um, and they're in this group called Christians. They're, they're believing the gospel. They're becoming, they're learners about Jesus Christ. See, that's the word disciple. They're learning about Jesus. And as they learn, they immediately begin to complain about the other people. I want to break this down a little bit because I think it's interesting what happens here. First of all, it's fair to say that they're learning about Jesus, right? They're, they're tr coming to faith. The disciples were increasing. The people were learning. But they begin to get in the room, and the word when it says they complained against the other people, it, it's this idea that um, they're throwing down uh, next to each other the comparisons. They're, they're looking. In the story, one group looks at the other group and says, hey, why aren't you treating us like them? That's what's happening. There's a group of people Amongst the disciples, the apostles who are being cared for well, and there's a group of people who are being completely ignored. And, and the ignored people say, uh, excuse me, what about me? 
this isn't fair. Like, if, if you've ever been a parent or ever been a sibling or ever been a, a, a person, a co- I, wasn't, I had no siblings, but I had cousins, that's the number one complaint. It's not fair. It's not fair, right? What's fundamentally happening is we are comparing our situation to another situation, and when they don't line up, we immediately assume it's not fair. So they raise their voices about it. By the way, I find it interesting that in the Word, it doesn't say they complain to the apostles about the problem. So they complained against the other Jews about the problem. Hey, that's not, how come you guys are getting food for your widows every day and our widows aren't getting food every day? What's up with that? Now this is what I think is brilliant about the text, about what the apostles do here. It's because the complaint isn't coming to them, but they do something about it. They're paying attention, right? And that brings me to my first point. Complaining reveals needs. So many times I've thought of this passage myself as, boy, isn't that just life in the church? Everybody's complaining about something. Nobody's happy. Everybody's got some ax to grab, some angle, something else that they're, you know. This, if you've been in church for a while, it's hard not to get cynical about it because it's like we all got something that we're complaining about. I complain about church, right? Um, and, but when you, re- when you think about it for a minute in this passage and in our lives, um, it was a valid concern they had. Why aren't our widows being cared for? By the way, can I just say this? Look at how seriously they took the idea of caring for widows and orphans. It happened every day. You know, that's what Jesus said, like, you know, this is a perfect religion. You would care for widows and orphans. Like, that's in the Bible. Like, that's the perfect expression of faith. And they took it seriously. And they said, he said, care for widows. We're going to do it every day. And they were literally feeding, you know, there could be cultural reasons for that. You know that, you know, different times, different times than now. But they took it seriously. And so every day they were feeding the widows, but only the Hebraic. And the Grecian widow's like, hey, what about us? Who are we? You see, often in our lives, when someone complains about something, and I do this, so I'm not preaching at you, I'm with you, we just we complain against the complainer and we don't say what is that what do you what do you need because here's the truth complaining reveals needs not just in lives of people around us that we don't like complaining but we complain ourselves when we're complaining there's something under it that if you think deeply you come to realize there's some unmet need some expectation of care Something that's lacking that you want. And we might not even be complaining about the right things. We might not even be expressing our our desires rightly. But it just comes out as what the Bible calls grumbling. I don't know. Do you think that's true? Under all... See, this is a whole different perception of what it means to deal with someone who's grumbling or complaining. I'm amazed by the apostles' response here because they see this happening amongst, and it'd be easy to go, oh, stop being so childish, stop, you know, don't compare yourself to other people. No, they say, hey, this is a real concern. Let's sort it out. And that's what we're talking about, the way that they sort it out today. But before we move on, I want to ask the question, do you know uh, someone who often complains in your life? I think all of us do, right? Maybe it's us, the person in the mirror. What's the unmet need? 
The baby's crying right on cue. <laughs> We're born that way, aren't we? That's a baby saying, hold me, feed me, rock me, make me do something, you know? Soothe me. Do you know someone that, has, that complains a lot? What is the real unmet need? That's the first question I want you to ask. What is the real unmet need? And maybe in your own life, what is the real unmet need? And then the second question is like it. Can the need be met? What's the practical response to the need? Because there's a tendency we have too in church world to over-spiritualize things. What's the practical response? Maybe someone's complaining because they're lonely. Maybe someone's complaining because they feel like they're left out. Maybe someone's feeling complaining because they feel like they have, they want to do something and they aren't being allowed to do it, right? There's some real root unmet need going on. We ought to figure out what it is and see if it can be met. If it's met, we should meet it. But this is the second thing. This is in verse 2. It's pretty amazing. And I'm just going to put it up there. Complaining. Oh, I'm there you go. Uh, limitations are opportunities. Now this isn't, but check it out. Limitations are opportunities. Verse 2. So the twelve, that's the apostles, gathered all the disciples together. They said, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. Now that can sound a little bit like they're saying, hey, we're, we're too good to wait tables. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying it's not right that we would neglect one thing for another. What they're doing is they're saying, hey, we have a limitation of ability. We cannot do it all. Right? So that's the first acknowledgement. The, the apostles don't say let us distribute the food to everyone ourselves. But they say, hey, we can't do it all ourselves. And then they come up with a solution. See, because limitations are opportunities. Say, it would not be right that we would neglect the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers, that's the crowd now gathered, the two sides, choose seven men from among yourselves who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. You see, it's an opportunity for them. We're going we're gonna to let you solve the problem. This proposal pleased the whole group, it says. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Taman, uh, Parmenius, uh, Nicholas, from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. See, so they did it. It's an opportunity to move forward. So the word of God spread. Isn't that awesome? So they saw the limitation, the real limitation, and they said, hey, let's do something different about it. You guys pick seven people, and we'll give them the responsibility. Look at what happened. It was an opportunity to affirm the need that was had, that was expressed. They didn't say, stop whining. They said, you're right. Let's solve the problem. But they also do this thing we have a tendency to do. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. And we end up trying to be everything to everyone all the time. No. It's not, it doesn't work. And here I'm probably preaching to myself as much or more than anyone else. Because there's such a tendency to think we can do everything ourselves. Do you feel that way at all? I can do it. I, I, I'm able to do that. And we aren't willing to admit that we have real limitations in our lives. You, you have like practical limitations, like what you're able to do, but you also have like what? Limitations of time, limitations of resources, uh, limitations of ability to even try anymore, right? I mean, you can commit to so many things, you get so overwhelmed that you can't do anything anymore. Not some of it, you, you just can't do any of it because you're overcommitted. And they saw that, and they said, look, it would not be right that we would neglect the ministry of the word, that's one thing, and prayer. 
That's what they felt like their primary calling was. So instead, let's do this. It's an opportunity for someone to serve. Appoint seven, or, or elect seven from amongst yourselves, and we'll appoint them to this. And we'll give them the responsibility. And they did. I want to mention something. I'm not sure, sure if you heard this before or not, but there's this concept out there called uh, opportunity costs. How many of you have heard that before, opportunity costs? Yeah, a few of you. So there's this idea that when you, when you do something or give your time to something or pay for something, uh, it costs you that, right? And we all know that. I mean, so if I have a dollar and I, I buy a snow cone for a dollar, it costs me a dollar. And that's one thing, right? But there's this other thing that's harder to figure out in our lives. It's called the opportunity cost of things. And that means that if I take my dollar and I buy a snow cone for a dollar, not only did I have to pay a snow, the dollar for the snow cone, but I can't use that dollar to buy anything else like a Snickers or a Coke. I've already, I've already spent it, and I can't spend it anywhere else. And what's amazing to me is here in, in Acts chapter 6, we see that the apostles say there's an opportunity cost for waiting tables. You see, because I want to say to the apostles, hey, buddy, suck it up. Wait some tables, right? Show them. Lead by example. But no. Because they say the opportunity cost for us would be that we would have to neglect the word of God and prayer to do this. They aren't saying it's not important. It's an opportunity cost. And we're limited. And so they decide instead to offer the opportunity to do it. And so they do. By the way, let's notice the leaders were selected from among yourselves. Man, that's so powerful to me, right? The people who are complaining about the problem had amongst themselves the opportunity to resolve the problem, you know? I mean, isn't it beautiful? They brought it to the leadership, and the leadership's like, you know what, let's solve it. Pick seven people that you know are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And they go, we know seven people like that. And they gave them, okay, well, let's make them responsible for it. Listen to me. And it changed their lives forever. Those seven. You want me to lead in that way? You want me to serve in that way? And they stepped up and they began to exercise these muscles that God had given them to wait tables. And they were faithful in waiting tables. And what does it say? And the number of disciples grew, hugely grew that day because of their service to the people. One more point, we'll move on here. Notice that they were given the responsibilities. Man, have you ever, have you ever had somebody micromanage you? And I think I'm guilty of this at times. Someone gives you a job to do, and you go to do it, and they're like, oh, but wait, do it. And wait, I said, and, uh, and you're like, oh my gosh, just do it yourself, right? They were given the responsibility. The apostles weren't going to have any part of this table waiting stuff. They're like, this is a job. You're going to do it. You're going to be great at it. And they gave the responsibilities. They were recognized amongst the community. They were called up front and said, hey, this person is now responsible for these things. It's, it's going to be good for the community. And then they were empowered to the task. And I say empowered to the task because the word says that they laid hands on those who were going to serve tables. By the way, these are deacons. That's where we get the word deacon in the church. These are uh, um, servants in the church. They laid hands on the servants, and that's a sign of the power of God through them for this ministry or this vocation, this purpose, calling. And the result, as we already said, is the word of God spread. That was the effect. So I have a couple applications for you. Have you ever thought, you know what we need to do, dot, 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 about maybe something at work or something in church or something in your house? You know what we need to do, dot, 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 and you got a great idea? My two follow-up questions is, A, what do you think about you doing it, Right? Uh, it's the old, like, whoever smelt it, dealt it rule, you know? Are you willing to do it? 
It was your idea. I mean, you saw the need. I mean, that's the story of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? He saw the need. Why wait for somebody else to come along the road? But that's half. The other half, I would say, is if you're not willing to do it, are you willing to let somebody else do it? So say you have a really, really great idea. And you're like, this is a great idea, but I don't have time to do it. And you miss somebody, they say, oh, that's a great idea. Do you ever say, hey, would you want to do it? And if they say, yeah, I'd love to do it, then you just go, awesome. And you just kind of back away. Do it. <laughs> Let's see what happens. That seems to be what's happened with the disciples here. They say, hey, do it. And they let other people do it. See, I think there are both things. We, sometimes we don't want to do it, and we think, we, we think then no one can do it. <laughs> no one else can do it. If we can't do it, no one can do it. Not really? See, limitations. Our limitations are opportunities for other people. Opportunities, uh, in this case, for the church. All right. Now, talk about some basic fundamental requirements for leadership in the church. Uh, I love this. It's laid out here, and it's repeated throughout this. But leaders, especially the church, I think it's true all over the world, anywhere, any position of leadership, but leadership, especially in the church, requires spirit and wisdom. Whenever the apostles came, they don't say, hey, guys, uh, go pick uh, seven amongst yourself who are great waiters, who are really good at taking care of widows. That's not what the, the qualifications for the job. They say, pick seven people from among yourself who are full of the spirit and wisdom. The spirit here is the Holy Spirit. It's been talked about throughout the book of Acts, right? It doesn't say hagios pneuma here, but it, it's implying the same, the spirit and wisdom. So pick seven people who are full of spirit of wisdom. I want to talk about why, why this is. In, in the, um, the Bible, the, the Holy Spirit of God is directly equated to power, uh, to, to the idea of dunamis, ability to work. The spirit equals power to do something. And so they say, make sure you pick people who are spiritual because they're powerful people, right? So make sure that they're filled with the Spirit of God. But then the second thing they say is make sure that they're wise, which is Sophia in the Greek. And it means the ability to, to, um, to intellectually think or to uh, ponder, to concern themselves, to think deeply about what's about to happen. So pick someone who's full of the power, of God and pick someone who's full of wisdom, which by the way, wisdom comes from God. So let's don't say that. that I'm not saying that wisdom's not related to God at all. But wisdom is kind of like this. Wisdom is how you apply the power that you have that God's already given you, right? Now let me explain why I think that this is the case. Because if you choose someone who has the spirit or you know just power, they can dominate. They can they can rule. They can, um, you know, be a terrible uh, boss. I mean, you can have someone who's very powerful but unwise, and they're a tyrant. And that's a problem. They could use this position to um, uh, abuse people, to force people um, against their will to do things. They can do all this ungood, ungood stuff. But the second, then, is, so if you have someone who's spiritual, meaning powerful but not wise, you have a tyrant. But if you have someone who's wise but not powerful, they're useless. Because they'll, they'll, they'll sit there and they'll think, oh, I, this is, I know what should happen, but they won't do it. There's no dunamis, right? There's no power. And so the apostles say you need both. You need the spirit, a compulsion, a compunction, a, a, a desire to help. You have to have someone that wants to serve, that wants to be involved, that the spirit is in, the, the spirit of God is compelling them toward it, but then they have to have wisdom about how to apply it and where to do it. And I want to point out one more thing. Look what it says. 
Pick seven from among you who are known to be. You see that? Pick seven who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. This wasn't something new. It wasn't like you're going to pick seven people and then whenever they get appointed to the rule, they're going to have it. It's like they already have it. That would be like me saying, you already know the leaders among you. Pick the leaders among you. And you look around and you go, yeah, I know who they are already. That's what's being taught here. It's not to pick someone and they're going to have these things, but pick someone who has these things and put them in the positions that you want them in. So pick people who are full of the spirit and wisdom, and we're going to put them in the position of being in charge of the distribution of food. And that's what happens. It seemed to please the whole group is what the word says, right? So it's a requirement of leadership. I say it's a requirement inside and outside because the same things hold true. If you have a boss who's very powerful but not wise, he's a tyrant. And if you have a boss who's wise but not powerful, he's kind of useless, right? You need both. Power and wisdom, the Spirit of God, and insight. Or discernment is the way you could say that, right? And isn't it interesting, by the way, too, here, and I'll just mention this in passing, that they, they say pick seven amongst yourselves. We have no idea why it's seven. Um, but they had 12. <laughs> they said pick seven. I think that's kind of interesting. So my question for this is, you know, do you think, now we, at, we said you pick other people who are, pick other people who are full of the spirit and wisdom. But here's the question. Do you think in your life, in your real life every day, that you demonstrate on a regular basis the, the fact that you are filled with the spirit and wise? Because I, according to what I'm reading here, that's the kind of person you want to be, again, inside or outside of church. Be full of the spirit and wise because people will notice that and they'll say, hey, here's a leader. This is a leader. And, and I, would, I would say that if you don't have those things in your life, if you feel like, well, I have a lot of spirit but not a lot of wisdom, or I have a lot of wisdom and not a lot of spirit, that you would talk to God about that and say, God, you know, would you give me these things? Because I think that the world does need great leaders, and great leaders have spirit and wisdom. I think the world recognizes it in a great leader when we see it. And indeed, we recognize it when we don't see it, when it's missing either spirit or wisdom. So do you think you demonstrate a fullness of the spirit of God in your life? every day. Not when you're in charge, but when you're not in charge, when no one's watching. Acts 6-7 teaches us this. Teamwork brings freedom. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient unto the faith. That's fascinating to me, right? So not only do um, the, the widows get fed, but the priests become to believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy? Not only that, but it says that... Um, they gave themselves over to the ministry of the word and prayer. So it was freedom also. Teamwork was freedom also for the apostles. They didn't have to worry about the table waiting anymore. And it was freedom for the disciples who were appointed to the position because they could feed the widows. They could exercise the muscle that they had. And in this way, it was freedom for the people because the people got the need met that they had expressed. Here it is. The need has been met by the apostles and the disciples working together on the, on, you know, for the benefit of the people, to the glory of God. And so the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests, that would be people who were serving in the temple, came to believe, came to be obedient to the faith. They learned to obey. That's huge. So teamwork brings this kind of freedom in. Not just, see, sometimes I think we, we believe that. No, I need to do it. But, it, you know, if you, if you have a team and it's one person trying to play our position, it doesn't work, right? It's not freedom for anybody. But if you can play your position, and other people play their position, it's beautiful. Let me tell you a couple places I see it. All the sports, all sports, except for like where it's one-on-one. -on -one. 
every other sport. Or an orchestra. Always reminds me of that in an orchestra. I see an orchestra, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a church. Every person plays their note. You know what I mean? Sounds silly. All by yourself. Playing your instrument. You put 15 together, and you're like, wow, that's beautiful. Right? And you got one guy up there just whipping a wand around. He ain't even playing nothing. And you know what you say when you watch that orchestra? That guy's good. <laughs> Don't you? And that's what happens here. The priests go, wow, that guy's good. Because <laughs> why? They're obedient to the faith. The word of God spreading. All right, now we're going to dig in. So now, uh, Stephen, this is in verse 8, a man uh, filled with God's spirit, or grace and power. See here, we're going to see this thread come through. The great wonders and miraculous uh, signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as they were so called. Um, I'm going to skip the names thing again there, but then listen to this. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his what? Wisdom and the spirit by whom he spoke. So what we realize this is that serving demonstrates power. Serving demonstrates power. And Stephen, one of the seven who were appointed, demonstrates the power of God through his service. Look at what it says. He was full of grace and power, and then at the end there, but they could not stand up against him because of his wisdom and the spirit by whom he spoke, right? There it is, power and grace. Now, um, but th check this out right in the middle. It's really sneaky. It's in verse 8. Stephen did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Wonders and signs. Here is the lineage of wonders and signs, if you're wondering what the lineage is. In the First Testament, it was prophets who did wonders and signs amongst the people. And then you have Jesus who did miracles, wonders, and signs among the people, right? And then after Jesus dies and raised from the dead and goes to heaven, the apostles do wonders and signs among the people. And now we have Stephen, who's a disciple, a, de a deacon, a diacona um, in the church, and he is doing wonders and signs. So I want you to see that. All of a sudden, it doesn't say, then Stephen went out and served tables. He certainly served tables, but he did great wonders and miraculous signs amongst the people. So much so that it got him a bunch of enemies. And the enemies weren't inside. It seems that they were not. They were, they were from the synagogue of the freedman, as it were called. Isn't the irony? You see the irony there. The freedmen were mad about all the freedom happening in the temple. By the way, we're going to find out they're still, in the, they're still in the courts of Solomon here. All right, we've got to move. Here we go. And so opposition rose um, amongst them, and they opposed Stephen. But they couldn't even argue with him, uh, or they couldn't defeat him in argument because of the spirit of wisdom, and, or the spirit and wisdom that he had. So we have Stephen, and we have him doing amazing things, demonstrating the power of God through his service, which, again, I can't say enough. We ought to catch that. Service equals power. We see the people who serve as powerless, but that's not the way the Bible describes anyone who serves. They're powerful people who are serving. And in verse 11, let's pick it up. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and God, right? So they stirred up the people and the elders of the teachers of the law. So they're like working amongst the Jewish people. And they see Stephen. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. You remember, that's exactly the same place that Peter was brought with the other apostles before. So now Stephen, not only is doing wonders and, and signs like the apostles did, but now he's in front of the Sanhedrin just like the apostles were. Same deal. 
They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy, this holy place, right, the temple, and against the law, right, the rules you have to follow. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. The amazing thing I want to say here is this. Stephen is preaching Jesus. That's what he's doing. Do you remember Jesus taught that about the temple? Do you see this glorious place? All these stones we cast on upon one another. I mean, Stephen's preaching Jesus, and they're still interpreting it the same way as a threat to this place and a threat to our religion. That's how they're our power, our, our the law, right? And then verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I don't know what you think of when you think that, but I had a tendency to think when I thought Stephen had a face of an angel, he was like, <laughs> I mean, like, la. You know, whatever an angel is to you, that's what I thought he was doing here, right? But I think an angel is a messenger from God. And I think we have a weak view of angels. And I think Stephen had a look in his face that they go, oh boy, this is trouble. That's why I think. I think he had a face of an angel. It means a messenger. He had something to say. Specifically, by the way, the word here says that the way that he looked at them, that the, he was facing them, right, the Sanhedrin. He wasn't afraid of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't demuring. You know, he wasn't hiding anything. He was looking right at them. And they looked in his face and they thought, oh boy, that's a face of a messenger. Chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest asks him, are these charges true? And to this, Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The glory of God appeared in our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and go to your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you will now be living. He gave him, listen to the word, no inheritance in this place. Not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess this land, even though at that time Abraham had no children. We're in verse 7 here, by the way. You know what he's doing? He's going to tell them the history of Israel. He's going to tell the Sanhedrin, the teach the law, the history of Israel. Now listen to it. Verse, uh, or we're in verse 5. Six. God spoke to him on, on the way that your descendants will uh, be strangers in a country that is not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will, um, uh, they will come out of that country and they will worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Remember the twelve patriarchs? You may not, but listen to this. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. Remember Joseph and his coat that his dad said, you're my favorite one, Joseph. It says, because they were jealous of Joseph and his coat, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him, and he rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over all of Egypt and all of his palace. And then the famine struck in all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing... Uh, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food, right? The patriarchs were jealous of jo Joseph. And so when Jacob heard that there was a grain in Egypt, he, he sent our fathers there for a visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. And after this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And then Jacob came down to Egypt where their fathers had died. The, the bodies that were brought to Shechem and placed in the tomb of Abraham, 
that, had, that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor and Shechem for a certain sum of money. Verse 17, at that time, uh, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, here it is, the number of people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing of Joseph became the ruler of Egypt, and he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn children so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and there was no ordinary child. This was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house, and then he was placed outside. Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and in the powerful speech and actions that they have. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites, so he's coming back to his people. He saw one of them being mistreated as an Egyptian, and so by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense, and he avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would recognize or realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon the two Israelites and they were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, now listen how much this ties in what just happened. Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? Like, why are you fighting with each other? But the men who was mistreating the other said to Moses, uh, who do you think you are? Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, and he settled as a foreigner and had two sons there. After 40 years had passed, now I want you to hear the math here. He's 40 when he goes back to his people and he recognizes he could, he could serve, right? He runs away. 40 years later, he's 80 years old, 80 years old. An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to look more closely, and he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come and I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had, look at the word, rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? You see, Moses was their savior and he thought that they, he, they thought he wasn't. He was sent to be their ruler and their deliverer by God himself, though the angel had appeared to him in the book, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Verse 36, he led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt and the Red Sea for 40 years in the desert. This is what Moses, who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with, and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers, here it is again, refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us a God who can go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, uh, we don't know what has happened to him. And so that was the time that they made an idol in the form of a calf, and they brought sacrifices to it, and they held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols that you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. 
Stephen continues, Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the patterns that he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it in with them when they looked the land from the nation, took the land from the nations that God had drove out before them. It remained in their land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked for, uh, and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built the house for the Lord. However, the Most High does not live in houses. So I want you to see, because I know there's a lot, but I want you to see what's happened. Stephen starts back with the history of Israel, and he goes, there's Abraham, then there's uh, Isaac, Jacob, there's Joshua, then there's Moses, who they just said, you're speaking against Moses, then there's Jesus, and then he's talking now about the temple being built, this place. Remember they said, you're going to tear down this place. And he said here, um, but Solomon's when it built this place. That's what he's saying. Now check it out in verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet said, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? He has, has not my hand made all these things? Like, God is bigger than all stuff. And then P Stephen just turns it up here, and he says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you were just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed the one that was predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, who you have received the law. You who have received the law put into effect through the angels, but have not obeyed the law. See, he goes all the way from Abraham to you killed Jesus. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. Now get this, he's in the temple of God. Looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand and he said, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and they screamed at the top of their voices and they all ran to Stephen and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. What's my point? This is it. Messengers. Mike gets shot. <laughs> See, I thought about waiting on that till next week. Oh, that was a lot, right? That's all part of the same story. This Stephen, who's going to be a deacon and serve in the church full of the spirit and wisdom, he ends up being the first person who's killed in service to Jesus Christ. He preaches boldly. He, he, he doesn't pull back at all. He says, I am not speaking against this place. I'm speaking for this place. It's Jesus that you killed. And they can't handle it. And they just literally scream, cover their ears. They're in total denial. And they take him outside the city and they begin to stone him to death. Here, check this out. Man, if we don't think this is a redemption story. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid the clothes of their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed this prayer. Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, that's commander, master, ruler. Don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, here's the thing. I asked you at the beginning, do you ever want God to use you right where you are? I think for a lot of us, we're afraid of what that means. 
We see a story like that and we're like, it cost Stephen everything. If Stephen hadn't been full of spirit and power or wisdom, uh, he might be alive today, is what you could say. But I think this. I think that Stephen's decision to step up and serve in that way gave him a chance to see the glory of God revealed. And he was able at the end of his life to unselfishly say, receive my spirit and forgive their sin. Right? Don't hold this against them. Do you remember anybody else like that? Do you remember anybody else who was being killed and said, don't hold this sin against them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, Jesus. We get here a model, a demonstration after the fact of an opportunity that we have to be like Jesus. Be like Stephen. I don't know if you want that kind of experience in your life. I don't know if you want that kind of spirituality, that kind of reality. I'm going to pray for us that if God has it for us, we would gladly take it. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we just thank you so much for who you are and for your great servants who come before us. We thank you for the fact that you saw fit to capture them and inspire us by them. We thank you for the fact that you are way bigger than we thought that you were. And that when we're sitting here thinking, you know, Jesus is a New Testament thing, you remind us that Jesus is his Old Testament thing, that he's the whole Testament thing. That you sent your son as a perfect solution for all of our sin problems. And not only that, for our freedom, our way forward. Father God, I do come before you and I pray that you would raise up a generation of holy servants who think not of themselves but of others and of your glory. I pray, Father God, that you would commission into the field people who are willing to die for the cause, that they would be willing to give up everything, that they would follow you. And Father, and not just in these ways we think all the time, these traditional trappings of what ministry looks like, but in these daily service opportunities that they would give themselves over to you. I pray for people who are hearing this right now, that in their lives, that you would use your Holy Spirit to empower them in these little, tiny, beautiful ways that would be glorifying to you, that people would say, wow, that's a beautiful conductor in charge of that person. Father, would you be our Lord and Master in that way? Direct us to the places we need to go. Help us serve you faithfully. We love you so much. We pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us courage to obey and take on the task. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.